Good to be here. As Pastor mentioned, we've been in Spain for the last 15 years, working in the area of church planting, church development, helping churches to grow, also starting churches, working extensively in the Bible school, helping teacher and training and development of, of ministers, of leaders in the country, also doing leadership seminars, uh, and also teaching in the Bible school. I, my professor there at the Bible school in Spain, also serving on the board. process right now of moving the Bible school through the accreditation process. So it's a huge Huge process, but we believe God has given us a platform in terms of where we are with our teaching and curriculum, etc., etc. And so God, it's just a great, great time that the great door that the Lord is opening. But we went to Spain, Doug, because uh, the need there is great. You know, when we think of Spain, we think, oh, wow, beautiful. It's, you know, there's no real jungle. There's no real, you're not out in the bush, obviously. But however, the unique thing about Spain and what makes it a mission field is the fact that um, there's tremendous spiritual darkness in the country. Spain has never had revival. It's a country of over 1,500 years of history and never have seen you know, revival or a move of God. The evangelical church in general is not too common and not too frequent as it is here. But God is doing a real unique work in helping us to establish and plant churches there so that many people are wanting, are hungry. I say it's a spiritual vacuum it's because uh, Spaniards spend close to $2 billion a year in what we would call the occult practices and this is an interesting note, but this past November, this past November, the, the Pope visited Spain. Spain is a crown jewel to the church there. And he visited two cities, not one. Now, most of the time when the Pope comes, he visits one city in a particular country. But this time, he visited two cities. And then they came out with a recent statistic saying that Spaniards are about, today in Spain, 79% of Spaniards, 79% are professing Catholics. Out of the 79% professing Catholics, only 14% actually attend Mass on a regular basis. This is a secular statistic that every time Pope visits, they always do these statistics and stats. It's, it's what they do. That kind of gives you a picture of where the country is uh, spiritually. Uh, it's a huge concern, even in the Catholic Church and all that. So uh, Spain is in desperate need of the Gospel. And Spain is in desperate need of people to hear the Gospel and know the Gospel. We're also extensively involved in working in development, evangelistic efforts. We did all kinds of you know, crusades, outdoors, all kinds of in parks and public places. And you know, God is helping us to reach uh, souls and helping churches to be planted. We've established about all together during our time there uh, four churches in Spain. This last church plant we, uh, we established was in Madrid, the capital city, about five and a half million people. And God uh, helped us there tremendously as we went into that. We, had, we pretty much didn't have anything to start with. We had no building, no facility. No instruments, no workers. We had absolutely nothing. And from that, God just directed and guided, helped us. And I've got a, uh, a brief uh, video I'd like to show you, uh, give you a bird's eye view of what's been taking place there recently uh, in the country and how God's been helping us. And just want to share by way of that, um, my wife is extensively, she's in another church this morning. We're trying to get back to Spain this summer. So we're trying to be, uh, expedite this process as quick as possible so we can get back and continue to do things that God's called us to do there. But she's extensively involved in Sunday school development, helping uh, a lot of teachers and a lot of churches, uh, trained churches and uh, leaders and trained workers in the area of Sunday school, developing curriculum, also providing resources, and helping them to reach out to the kids and teach the kids uh, the best way possible, teach them how to do Bible stories, lessons, planning, development, children's church as well. So, She's really involved in a local and national level in that area. It's been a true blessing and an honor to have been there and to continue to work there. Um, these are really interesting times that we're living in. We don't know how much more time 
We really have, but we know that God is on the throne and he's uh, wanting to reach out and save as much and as many as he can save possible. So with that, I'd like to show this DVD if we're ready for that right now. Your Bibles, turn to the book of Matthew. I want to share a passage, a familiar passage that we've seen and read before, but something that the Lord has been helping us with. Matthew chapter 14, we'll start reading um, in verse 13. As Matthew chapter 14 begins, it begins with the story of John the Baptist being beheaded and all that transpired there. But then as it moves into verse 13, the story continues here and it picks up by saying, When Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude, and he was moved with compassion for them, and he healed their sick. When it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, This is a deserted place. The hour is already late. Send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. But Jesus said to them, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Then they said to him, We have here only five loaves and two fish. He said, Bring them here to me. Then he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass. And he took the five loaves and the two fish. And looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples. And the disciples gave to the multitudes. So they all ate and were filled. And they took up twelve baskets full of the fragments that remained. Verse 21 says, Now, those who had eaten were about 5,000 men besides women and children. 5,000 men besides women and children. And my question to you this morning is, if there were 5,000 men besides women and children, how many of them in total would you say were there at this particular event? How many would you say? Five, keeping in mind, verse 13 says that they... Followed, you know, when they heard where Jesus was, they followed him on foot from the cities. And it also uses the word multitudes, which means mega. In other words, it was such a large amount of crowd that it became hard to, to count at one setting. 5,000 men besides women and children. We also know that, you know, back in these days, a great social security benefit was having kids. You know, so as the kids grow, they kind of, you knew that mom and dad would be taken care of. That's just the way things were. But it's a system that worked. So keeping that in mind, how many of them would you say in total were there at this particular event? Would you say 10,000? Not too many. You don't convince about 10,000. No, no. Would you say 15,000? How many would say 20,000? Well, for the sake of not sounding like an auction, I looked this up a little bit, and it said that most of conservative scholars would say you know, 10, 12,000 pushing at the most. Some other scholars say close to 15, maybe 18,000, very realistically, very possible, or there possibly even 20,000. If we took the figure of, let's say, 15 plus thousand people, that's a lot of people. Most of our enclosed arenas today, if you went to see a hockey game or basketball game and enclosed, they hold 15, 20 plus thousand people. And it's a lot of people when you get them all together in one setting. It's a lot of people to mobilize and move around. That's about how many he encountered Bible says when he saw all those people there, um, he had compassion on them, the Bible says, and he healed their sick. He had compassion on them and he healed their sick. When we first went to Madrid in 2000 um, to establish this church, it was uh, it's called Christian Celebration, the name of the church, or in Spanish, uh, Celebración Cristiana, as we call it. And when we established the church, like I said, we had absolutely 
nothing. If you add zero plus zero, you get, and that's what we had when we started. We started with a 40-day fast. Um, there was, we started with another missionary couple, so it was a joint effort. And we said, well, you know, God, you have to help us. You've got to direct us. You've got to guide us. So we started with this 40-day fast. There was four adults, so we each took 10 days, just did it outright, and then did a prayer chain throughout that whole time period. And so there we were, starting this church, 40-day fast. You know, we did several after that, but we kicked it off with a huge fast and saying, God, you've got to help us. You've got to show. We were some pretty lean and pretty mean missionaries back then, but more lean, I think, back than anything else. But we said, God, you've got to show us, where do you start a city of five and a half million people to, to, to plant a church? What, you know, what direction? You know, we just had the blessing of the church saying, yeah, go start a church, and that was it. You know, let's say just so we said, wow. So we, where do you start? So we prayed and we asked God to help us. But one of the things we did was we got down to we wanted to know the city a little more, Madrid, and to know the people, get a feel, get a sense of what God was doing and where. So we go and travel around the city, and it's amazing how many hundreds of thousands of people travel underneath the city from Monday through Friday. Just so many people through the subway system. So we would pack into the subways and kind of get to know the city, feel the people. And as we would travel through the subway, it's amazing. When we first went, got there, um, I'm from Columbus, uh, New Jersey, so it's kind of very typical as it is here. Uh, I like the silos and the farm. And I, you know, when it would snow, I'd take my dog for a walk. we just walk from farm to farm to farm. So here I'm in this huge city. You know, you, you just everything is, your north and south and east and west all of a sudden change a little bit. So we're trying to get to know the city, trying to get to know all these people, and we travel in the subway systems, and as we would, you know, we'd pack into these subways. Here it was 7, 7.30 in the morning. We are sandwiched in these subway cars, you know. And I remember, st- you know, was in one particular subway. We were traveling down, and all of a sudden, you know, it came up to a stop. It wasn't my stop. The doors opened up, and it all of a sudden became my stop. Because you have seven seconds to get out or get in, and if you don't, you, you don't. It's just you, you wait till the next stop. And, but just all, and but something that really caught our attention is we would look upon the people's faces. You know, we saw looks of, of consternation, looks of hurt, suffering, um, bitterness, anger, hatred, uh, the, just all kinds of things going on. And we, we'd approach them. And, and as we would do that, God impressed upon our hearts to begin to move about in the city with compassion. Move about in the city with compassion. And my question is, what is compassion. Now, compassion here is the ability to feel the pain and suffering of others together with the desire to alleviate it. Together with the desire to alleviate it, which means we've got to do something. We just can't stand idly by, but something has to be done. Something needs to be done to help reach people that are in need. Biblical compassion. And so we would talk to these people and say, look, I know you don't know me, I know, but I just want to saw you there, you know, something going on, we want to help you, we want to pray with you, possible. And many people told us, you know, I don't even believe in God, if you want to pray, pray. But we would just sit there and talk. We'd invite them out for a coffee and, and just sit and chat and as many people. And people began to respond to that. People that didn't know God, people who didn't have faith, people who never even thought about God began to respond to us as we would approach them, talk to them, show a simple act of compassion. Buy him coffee, buy him lunch, or buy him something and help him as much as we could. We didn't have a lot of money. We went there, but we did the best as what we could. But they sensed genuine love, genuine care. They sensed that there was someone there who really cared for them through compassion. Compassion goes a long way because if it's biblical compassion, it is directed outward. It's never directed to ourselves. 
And to us, for us to move in biblical compassion, we have to not think of only ourselves, but think of others first. And when that takes place, God begins to help and God begins to give us his eyes to, so that we, we can see what he sees. Because if our heart is saying, God, we want to help with compassion, we want to pour out compassion, God will give you eyes and a heart of compassion to move in this area. And so God began to do some wonderful things. The church began to form slowly. Things, uh, people were coming. We were very, very small. We were, in a, we were meeting in an apartment once, and we had a uh, song service. I had this guitar that I played. It was a, it was a Yamaha. It's like over 35, 40 years old. It was cracked in the back. And there we are singing several, you know, songs to the Lord. And God began to move in this one service that we had. It was like a Bible study, right? It wasn't even a service. But God began to move. Sang one song. Holy Spirit moved. And all of a sudden, now, the neighbors from down below came upstairs and said, Hey, what are you guys doing? You know, this is a residential area. You guys are so, you know, so loud. So then we knew it's time for us to make a move. So we began to then move to different places, you know, hotel room and other places like that. It got a little expensive. We finally found this large house that had a lot of rooms. And so we figured we can rent this house and use the extra rooms for classrooms and for meeting places. But it had this two-car garage. And then we said, we'll save a little money and we'll, we'll use this two-car garage. So there we were, about 15 of us, maybe 20 at the most, and in this large house with a two-car garage, moving around with compassion, happy but knowing, you know, what else can do to impact the city for the Lord. And then God began to impress, and God began to do something with us in a, in a very unique way that kind of caught us by surprise, but at the same time taught us a tremendous lesson. As the story unfolds here, the Bible says in verse 15 of, of Matthew chapter 14, Verse 15 says, when it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, this is a deserted place. The hour is already late. Send the multitudes away so that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. When it was evening. So for the most part of the day, disciples, Jesus, were out amongst the people. Fifteen plus thousand people praying. And it just takes most of the day was pretty much spent doing that. Now the sun is about to set. Disciples are wondering, you know, we've been out here all day. It's getting late. Um, food is mentioned in this passage, so you know what they were probably thinking. We're getting hungry. They basically wanted to disperse the crowd and you know, the ministry of that day and go home. But then Jesus begins then to move from a level of compassion now to a level of passion. And it says here, his immediate response to them is, they do not need to go away, but rather you, imperative, you give them something to eat. And I'm sure that some of the disciples thought, you know, Jesus, I think you've been in the sun a little bit too long. We're talking a lot of people. So they say, okay, let's cut to the chase. And they say to Jesus, we have here five loaves and two fish. Can we go home now? And Jesus said to them, bring them here to me. So Compassion, now we're moving to a level of passion, equally as important and equally necessary in our lives. What is passion? What is passion? Passion is a strong desire that we have to do something, but so strong to the point where it will push you to maybe doing things that you've never done before. It's a strong desire, strong feeling you have towards something or someone passion. And we're all passionate, aren't we, about something? Do you have a passion? 
I mean, we could be vintage cars, could be shopping, cooking, could be travel. We're all passionate about something. But, you know, I got to thinking about that, and I got to realize, you know, God is also a passionate God, isn't he? Is our God passionate, or is he not? Is our God a God of passion, or is he not a God of passion? God is a God of passion. And if God is a God of passion, then my question is, what is God passionate about? Souls. What is God passionate about? Souls, people, saved or unsaved. If we look to the scripture, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, the world that he gave, that is a very passionate verse. Because he's giving and he's giving to all. No favorites here. Awe. And if God is a God of passion, and His passion are souls, and God's given us the ability to have passions, then what should our passions be? Here's what happened. We were starting this church, and things were going, and God was helping us. I mean, we're in this two-car garage. We were there for a while. <laughs> we were just there for a while. And, um, you know, we were saying, okay, God, we're here, great. You know, and we are kind of in that... Have you ever been pastor between point A and B? And you're kind of like in the middle, and you don't know when you're going to get to B? Oh, man. Isn't that tough? You know? But he, he's a smart guy. I mean, he's a, he, he knows. He'll say, oh, yeah, I, I, yeah, no problem. You know? but I, I was like, I was struggling with this, man. I was like, you're pushing, you're, and you're like, well, and then God, we're praying, we're fasting, we're doing everything we know how to do. And, and you know, the church, it's just there. I mean, it's good, but it's just there. We're about maybe 30 people, maybe. Now, that's evangelistically speaking. And so a man comes to us. His name is Ruben. And he said, he said I want to, God's called me to, you know, to Madrid, called me to Spain. I want to start a church. We said, oh, that's great, you know, that's great. You know, and so we, you know, we said, well, you know, he had nowhere to go. And he said, well, come. He attended our church for a while. We prayed with him, had prayer meetings with him that God would lead him, God would guide him, God would direct him, etc., etc. And, and here we are all together praying and for him. And all of a sudden, God impresses upon our hearts to help this guy, Reuben, start his church. And we said, oh, okay. So we find a small storefront location on the other side of town. And there is really small, maybe about 30, 40 people who can fit in there. No more, trust me, no more. And there, you know, we get him started. And we buy some chairs for him. We pay his rent and put the down payment on it as well. He had no money. And we put some sound system in there. And there he is. He gets started. He's working and having a great time. And a couple, about four months later, he comes to us. He said, hey, Gil, I'm running out of room. I've got no room to grow. I mean, we've got kids coming. We've got families coming. We know, what do I do? Well, we said, well, you're going to have to go somewhere else. I mean, there's no way you could stay there. So he looks around, looks around. Finally, he finds this abandoned auto body shop. And we look at it. We look at it with him. It needs, you know, renovations. We put a, a floor in for him. We put a drop ceiling in for him. More sound system, more chairs, more supplies. And there, I remember his first Sunday morning service. You know, the place was almost packed. You know, he had all these people in there, all this excitement, all this jubilation is going on. And, and there we are. In the meantime, you know, we're still in this two-car garage. And so God's blessing him. He comes back to us about five months later. He says, Gil, I got no more room left in my Sunday morning service. What do I do? We said, well, Reuben, you know, have two Sunday morning services. So he prepares and he begins to have a second Sunday morning service. In the meantime... We're still in this two-car garage. 
And he has a second Sunday morning service, and things are going great. God's blessing. You know, he's, and he comes back to us about six months later. He says, Gil, I got no more room at second Sunday morning service. What do I do? And, you know, we're still in this two-car garage. And then you know, he said, well, Ruben, go, have, go to a Sunday night service. So he goes to a Sunday night service. And he has a Sunday night service. God is blessing, you know, about another five months later, you know, and he's filling out and he's telling us about the numbers and then he wants to have a meeting. And I thought, I know what he's going to tell me. His Sunday night service, he's filling that out. And he's packed and he has no place to go. We're still in this two-car garage. I began to say, hey, God, what about us? What's this all about? <laughs> God was blessing about. Long story short about Reuben. Today's the day he's got a church, without exaggerating, he's got about 600 people attending his church. I've been to his church. He's got a huge, long warehouse. Just amazing God has done. But God taught us something here. God t- because God taught us, if God is a God of passion, and if he, we can share his passion, and if God's people become passionate about the things that God is passionate about, then God will become passionate about us and show passion towards us. If God is a God of passion, he wants his people to be passionate. And if God's people become passionate, then God will be passionate with us. And when God is passionate towards you and I, wonderful things happen in our lives. How many believe that? Now, here's what takes place. He says, bring them here to me. So he tells them to sit down on the grass and people. And he lifts up, you know the story, he lifts up five loaves and the two fish. Okay, Five loaves, two fish. He lifts it up, blesses it, brings it down, then says, okay, disciples, get your basket. Disciples get their basket. The five loaves and the two fish are now divided into smaller portions. So instead of them increasing, the portions are decreasing. Each disciple looking down saying, wow, I've got a lot of food here. And now he says, okay, guys, go feed them. And so now they go out and, and they go feed them. Now do the math with me. If you were to divide five loaves and two fish into about 15 plus thousand people, how many portions per person would you have? Can somebody help me out here? I mean, we're talking small, you know, as they're passing it out, the wind gets it. Sorry, pal. Have you ever heard of Gone with the Wind? It's gone, man. You mean there's no way, mathematically, humanistically, logistically, there's no way you can wrap your mind around this to figure out how can this be done. But something happens. That only God can do when God becomes passionate. Miracles. Miracles. God is never surprised about our crisis. It never surprises him. He is concerned. But as crises arise in life, God's passion continues to flow. God doesn't stop his passion because of our personal crisis. As important as they are, but they don't stop. As disciples, they joined Jesus with his, uh, with his passion to move out among the people. As they went out, Bible, you, know, you know what happens? The Bible says they were all fed. The miracle of multiplication takes place so that everyone is fed. And more importantly, they began to realize and needed to know that as long as their eyes were on the people, what God is passionate about, God would always supply the need in the basket. But they had to keep their eyes on the people, not worry about the basket, worry about the people. Are their needs being met? If they're, are we helping? Are we doing everything? Everything. And believe me, going with a small, with a little basket, with a little bit of food, that's all they could do. But was it enough? Was it enough? That's all they could do. And it seems so insignificant. It seems so ridiculously, I mean, what are you going to do with that? 
We're talking major catering operation going on here. And yet, God, keep your eyes on the people, and I'll take care of your basket. Keep your eyes on the people. That's passion. That's passion. Keep your eyes on the people. I'll take care of the basket. And the Bible says here that they all were filled, and they ate, and they all were filled. Now, how many ate during Thanksgiving? You ate. You don't have to raise your hand, but you ate during Thanksgiving. You ate, right? You ate. You ate. One of my favorites I shared earlier is eggnog. Some people like it. Some don't, but I like eggnog. We don't have it in Spain, so I like it even that much more. And I can honestly say that I had my fill of eggnog. We'll just leave it there. And then, of course, we had Christmas, you know, and we had meat together, and, you know, we ate again. And as we left the table and we stood up, we really felt how much we ate. I mean, it was just there. It was just, it was there, you see. And that's the idea when the Bible says, and they all ate and were satisfied, Everybody ate, everybody had their fill, everybody was completely set, nobody wanted anything else. And then on top of that, it says, and 12 baskets full of fragments that remained. Now, what happened to those 12 baskets full of fragments that remained? They started with so little, they end with so much. What happened? That food went back to the disciples. And God spoke to me one day, and he said, as long as you keep your passion upon my heart, by the things that I'm, I will supply the need. I will supply the need. Now, as I come to a close here, I often think, what would have happened as we got into the latter part of our church, you know, God blessed, and as we moved seven times and, and towards the end, people were just providing. As a, every time we moved, the church grew. When we got to this building in an industrial park area, we know so much needed to be done. People said, Pastor, I'll, bring, I'll put your lights in. I'll put your floor in. Paint your walls. And so many people came in and literally became passionate about establishing and building this church. You know, and this is during the crisis. Because it affects us on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean. But because God was passionate about those people, and because God is passionate about people, God says it doesn't matter what crisis you and I face. What matters is the miracle that he can do in our crisis. That's what matters. And that is what the gospel is all about. And we all have a story. And I'm saying in 2009, we had to take our son to the hospital. For, he was going to the bathroom like crazy. Long story short, found out he had diabetes. Had to spend a week in the hospital to get all his system and all that. And he still has that. And then this past October, my wife had to go in for a procedure to remove a lump in, in her breast. You know, we all have things. We all have stories. And we all can share. But, you know, God has got his passions. And what's become sad is in the process of life, if sometimes our passions are dislodged, if we move the desire to really serve, to really give to God what he wants from us. If somehow, because of what happens to us, and I know pain is pain. I know pain is pain. But in the pain, there's God. In the suffering, there's God. And as long as God's people say, okay, I'm hurting, I'm suffering, but there you are, God. You're the God that sees, as Hagar said when she was in the desert, all by herself, wanting to get rid of her life. And the angel of the Lord came to her and said, what are you doing? Where have you come from and where are you going? Two of the most important questions in life. And after the, the angel speaks to her and helps her and tells her to go back, she says, you are the God that sees. And this morning, I want to say to you, he is the God that sees. He sees where you're at. He sees the hurt. He sees the pain. He sees the hardship. But he also sees his passion. 
And he's saying to us, if we are willing in our hurt, in our pain, to just say, God, I'm going to be passionate about the things you are passionate about, God can and will do a miracle and take you to the other side because that is who our God is. That is who our God is. And it may be blind faith, but it's faith. And I'd rather have blind faith than no faith at all. And even though it hurts, and even though it's hard, and it sits, and all that, but there is God with his passion. And if we move with godly passion, God will move upon our lives. Do what is necessary to take us to the other side, because our God is a God of miracles. I may have to wait, you may have to wait, but it's worth waiting for to see the miracle that God has waiting for us on the other side. And my question to you this morning is, how many are wanting and willing to join in with God's passion? Amen? You say, God, I want to join in with your passion. And I close with this. What would have happened now often think if one of those disciples looking at the poor, meager portion in his basket saying, what in the world am I going to do with this? What would have happened if one of the disciples said, you know, guys, I can't do this. I got too much going on. I'm just not seeing this. I'm not feeling this passion. Maybe for someone that it was a step of faith to actually walk out with a little portion of food and actually be a part of this great miracle. Maybe initially it was a huge step of faith. It probably was for many of them. They could not see beyond the basket. But God gives us eyes. And may God give us eyes. May God give us faith to see beyond our own back. The work that he still yet wants to accomplish through you. Don't think of yourself as insignificant. Don't think yourself as not qualified. Think of yourself as one of his disciples. Because he invited them to join in. He didn't obligate them. He invited them. But what would have happened if one of them said, hey, can't do this. Too hard. It's, I don't feel it. You know, guys... And if he would have dropped his basket, I'll meet up with you sometime tomorrow morning or the next day. You know, they would have missed being part of such a great miracle because I believe God has in store great miracles yet to come. As Pastor mentioned, it was the year of 2010, but you know, God's miracles don't stop December 31st. I like that. God's miracles don't stop. It only continues. And as we move on faith with God, Let us move with his compassion. Let us move with his passion. Let us truly be the called out ones, the Christians, the believers, who show and shed light, his light, to other people who are in need. Seek out after him. Don't get left behind. And he is not going to abandon ship here. He's going to ride the storm out with you. Hang on to his passion. It will keep you happy. It will keep you satisfied. It will keep you fulfilled. Stay close to the cross. And let Jesus provide the miracle that you need in his time. It will come. It will happen. Father, in Jesus' name, as we all pray this morning, we pray one more time, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to realize you are the God, Lord Jesus, the God that sees all. You are the God, Father, that can help, that can bring us through. You are the God that directs us through the storm. You are the God that lifts us up. You are the God, Father, that brings us through. You are the God that can even calm the winds and calm the waves. You are that God, and you are that God this morning. And I pray, Father, in Jesus' name, Lord, as we look to you, pray that you would look upon us, and I know that you see us, and that your heart would be poured out towards us, and that your arm of blessing would also go and be extended towards us, 
that whatever the needs of your people may be, Lord, that there'll be miracles, there'll be manifestations, there'll be a move of your spirit, Father God, amongst your people, and they would know, God, that you sit high and mighty and on the throne. They would know, God, that you direct all the events, that they would know, God, that you are in control, Father God. Let us not, Lord, turn away, let us not forget who you are, Father God. But Lord, let us remember who you are and let us be patient as we persevere towards your passions, towards your compassions, knowing that you will be passionate and compassionate with us, Father God. Bless your people, I pray, Father, in Jesus' name. Do your work, Father. Thank you so much.